and welcome. My name's Andrew Horsfield and this is The Messy Middle, a podcast that's designed for astute listeners like you who want to learn from leaders who are delivering results in a demanding context. It's been really pleasing to see the podcast getting some positive attention recently from places like Amazon, Spotify, and iTunes. And largely, that's thanks to you for listening, sharing, and posting your reviews. So please keep doing that as it's really helping broadcast the message and help the podcast's profile and reach. And if this is your first episode, of course, welcome. And if you like what you hear, you can subscribe, listen to other episodes, or find out more at andrewhorsfield.com forward slash podcast. This month, I have a ripping conversation with pioneer of the four-day week, Andrew Barnes, a leader who recognised that the way we're working just isn't conducive for people or performance, and so courageously empowered his employees to design and deliver better ways to work. And the result of that thinking was the four-day week, a new approach to work governed by three core principles. The business targets need to be achieved, with people only working four days a week while still being paid their equivalent full-time salary. In this conversation, I talk with Andrew about what a four-day week really means, what he did to make it work, and some of the different methods people used to become more productive. In a world where we're sadly still wearing busyness as a badge of honour, this conversation's really going to resonate for individuals and organisations who are looking for better ways to work. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with pioneer of the four-day work week, Andrew Barnes, the kind of courageous leader the world needs more of. Andrew, uh, thanks for joining me on The Messy Middle. It's great to be talking with you, and I'm super excited about the conversation we're going to be having around the four-day work week. So welcome. Thank you, Andrew. It's good to be here. For listeners who aren't familiar with a four-day work week or or perhaps for those who think it's killing yourself for four days to get a day off, can you maybe just start by explaining what a four-day work week is? Yeah, that what we talk about when we talk about a four-day week, we talk about this concept of what is a 180-100 rule. And the 180-100 is 100% pay, 80% time, provided we get 100% productivity. So the key point about this is it is about working 80% of a normal week. It's not about working four long days. And you can take it in numerous different ways. You can take it in the context of taking a couple of half days or, or indeed take, you know, work five days, but actually come in late, go home early, that sort of thing. So the key thesis yep. is it's a reduction in the working week from what we have down to about 80% of that, which equates to obviously four days. And where did this idea come up for you, Andrew? Was it a, a lightning bolt idea that sort of in the shower one morning or walking along the beach, or was it a bit of a, a slower percolating problem that you'd been thinking about for a while? Uh, look, I, I, was, <laughs> I was on a plane flying. You remember planes? We used to get on them and used to go to foreign countries. <laughs> uh, I... Uh, I was on a plane flying to England and I was reading an article in the UK Economist magazine, which was talking about 
poor productivity in the UK context and also the Canadian context. And what it said was that productivity was about two and a half to three hours a day. And that's true productivity. You had people in the office, they were being terribly busy, but output was effectively being driven out of about three hours. So I thought, well, that's interesting. Is that happening in my business? And if it is happening in my business, what would I do about it? And that's when the concept came of thinking, well, actually, if you've only get three hours of productivity a day, you get 45 additional minutes of productivity in each of four days, and you're going to get the same output in four days rather than five. And I then wondered, because of that, if I offered a four-day week, would in fact behavior in the business change and I might get better productivity? So when I started on the journey, it was simply to answer that particular question. Could I see changes in behaviors in my business as a consequence of a four-day week that would then drive better productivity? Once you decided to start to answer that question, can you walk us through that process a little bit around how you decided to implement the idea at Perpetual Mutual and how you communicated and convinced not just the staff, but I assume that the board as well, about this was an idea that was worth exploring? <laughs> well, basically, I had absolutely no idea. <laughs> so I, uh, what I did was I... Um, I sent a, uh, a text to, to the head of my HR at Perpetual Guardian, and I said, look, I said, well, look, I know conceptually this is crazy, but I'd like to try it. Um, and we got the management team together and said, this is what we want to do. And they they all said, you're mad. And then they all said, and how are we going to do it? And I said, actually, I have absolutely no idea. Um I want to just throw the challenge out there to the staff to say to them, look, um, I think this is a big deal. I think that giving you an additional day a week is, a, you know, it, that's, that's really positive for you. All I want back in return is the same level of productivity that I had before. So what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to throw it to you guys. You decide what it is you're going to do differently in order to deliver that productivity. Uh, and I said that the key thing for me is is I will honor my side of the bargain. I'll honor the deal to give you an extra day off a week. All I'm asking you to do is honor the fact that the company needs to get the same level of productivity and our customers can't suffer as a consequence of us doing this. You know, customer service has to be sacrosanct. I love that level of honesty, Andrew, and particular, in particular how rather than analytics and planning and research, it sounds that you've sort of replaced that with experimentation and empowering staff to find their own solutions. Can you, is that just a great culture that you'd established up until that point or is that just something you believe around the power of doing over designing can you share a little bit more about that uh, no i'm probably a little bit more of uh, uh, of experimentation rather than planning I, I will i will be honest the the key point about this is to come back as to why people 
in the research in from the UK were only productive for three hours a day. Um, and what that was was that they they spent an awful lot of time uh, being busy um, in meetings they shouldn't go to. I mean, after all, no meeting should last an hour. It only lasts an hour because Microsoft Office tells us it should last an hour, right? So it sort of does. Mm. Uh, we can invite a plethora of people to it. So my real thesis here was the only way, the only way these issues were addressed was if the staff themselves identified not just what they were doing and could they do the things that they were doing better, but also to identify the things that they were doing that they shouldn't be doing or that they could cut back on so that that would in turn deliver the better productivity. Yeah, I think for me, I mean, it's been a long time ago now since I was formally leading teams, but one of the things I, I used to say was go and make something that you're proud of. So there was a an element of, of their own ideas and intuition and rarely did that that fail or a, a poor product came back because I was starting to have a, a different level of investment that was simply through a, a different intentionality that, that you're obviously talking about. You're talking a lot about productivity and often the thing that links to that is this conversation around work-life balance. Do you see the two as very different beasts? Yes, I do in a way. Um, look, I'm, I, I think the best way to, to position this, Andrew, is to, is to, to summarise. I'm a businessman, right? I, I approach this on a very, very specific point, which was, would I get better productivity if my staff worked less hours? Obviously, I was aware of the issues around work-life balance, and obviously there were, there were bits in my own career where I knew that I'd overworked. I didn't want to see a, a culture of overwork in my business either. But I was very clear that that was not the driver for the experiment. Now, one of the dangers, I think, with when we talk about four-day week is that people people immediately default to work-life balance. Now, work-life balance is independent of productivity. That just says the amount of time I'm spending in the office and the amount of time I'm spending at home, that balance is incorrect. And and the best example of, of how not to do it, I think, arguably, is the French. You know, they legislated a 35-hour week but what they didn't get is an improvement in productivity mm. to compensate for the re reduction in the week. Now, consequently, there is a cost associated with that. Now, I can't see in, you know, in Australia, New Zealand, Britain, America, um, I can't see that anybody is going to do that sort of legislative approach. The French generally are much more interventionalist in the way in which they run their economy and bang out came that rule whereas what i was trying to say was that actually this will deliver the improvements in productivity or i thought it would now once it does that it means that the business is not um disadvantaged by bringing in a four-day week the employee then gets better work-life balance. But the two things are not mutually exclusive. And there often is that thought that the economic benefits or the economic costs 
of uh, a four-day week are not shared equally, whereas I believe in, in my approach, productivity first, they are shared equally and that both employer and business gets the benefits. So what are the strategies that you did, you know, for yourself, all people in those teams, what strategies did they apply to successfully move from that five days to four days without that loss of productivity or performance? The best, one of the best ones of these things to look at is, is the Microsoft uh, Japan experience. They did a, a test around the same time as we did. And they did three things. They said no more than five people in a meeting, no meeting more than half an hour, and please use Microsoft Teams. They got a 39.9% improvement in productivity from that alone. Not attending meetings, interminable meetings that you don't need to attend. Right. What we found is lots of little things. We did the meeting trick. Um we also did things like if you couldn't trust yourself to uh, to not look at your phone, we had lockers built that you could lock your phone away at the far end of the office so uh, you wouldn't get tempted to, to, to surf the internet. And we found actually that the amount of time people spent on the top five non-business internet sites in New Zealand dropped 35%. Wow. Now, we'd have expected a 20% drop because of people out of the office, but the time dropped 35%. So people had stopped doing certain things. We we introduced what we called the quiet hour, and that's a time when you could put a flag in a pot next to your desk. And if you did that, you were not to be disturbed for an hour. Um, and you could concentrate, and some people would put on noise-canceling headphones. Now, that, again, links to a piece of research that says in an open-plan office, uh, you are disturbed once every 11 minutes, and it takes you 22 minutes to get back to full productivity. So if you have an hour a day where you're not being disturbed, of itself, that is probably the equivalent almost of, of three hours. So that, you know, most, uh, again, most research indicates that the quieter the office, the better the cognitive ability of people in the office. So you're not wanting something that sounds like a morgue, but, but if you can take the noise levels down, you will automatically get an improvement in productivity. In the show notes for this show, I might even provide a little bit of research for people who are interested around that task switching and what happens when we go from one thing to another or with those, those interruptions that you've mentioned. You mentioned the office space itself, and we know sometimes that design can can often beat discipline. Were there certain changes you made to the, the structure or, or function of the office itself to encourage more productive practices? What we actually had done is we, we made the lunch area for the team where we, you know, we'd socialise in, in, uh, during the day or in the evening. We made that much bigger, so it was like a small cafe. And we basically said to people, you can no longer eat your lunch at your desk because, you know, we found that, you know, somebody next to you eating that great reheated curry um, and you're trying to work, uh, inevitably you get distracted. And probably also they're on a very interesting <laughs> phone call. Um, so it, by moving that away, you again drop the noise. We also removed all um, small little meeting areas that we used to have between our banks of desks. We moved those away and put them in 
booths that generally had high, soft backs, so it deadened the noise. And again, that meant that you were reducing the noise in the area of the workstations. Um, we encouraged everybody to eat, if they were eating in the office, um, in the lunchroom because we didn't want to lose the communication, the camaraderie between, you know, people in in the office. You know, we didn't want it just to be, you know, one of those old-fashioned um, photos of everybody, you know, um, eyes down, pouring over a desk in complete silence. So the idea around it is we wanted to have um, better social spaces, but again, moving them away from the desks meant that we we again dropped the noise. So really, those were the main changes that we did. Not significant, but but are all about you know making it easier for people to concentrate, making it easier for people to socialise, and also trying to find a way that we can reduce the impact of intrusive technology, if you will. I think that the shared workspaces now are learning that way of some of those cleverly designed spaces that you've obviously done in your office. Of Once upon a time, it was foosball tables and table tennis tables and things as thinking everyone wanted an office like Google and, and now they're quiet phone booths and breakout spaces and, and that soft furnishing that you're, you're mentioning. So I think we're getting better at this in the way that we want to be working. It's a, a terrific example for you within your own setting. Yeah, look, and I think that's I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I was over in New York when we were talking about the four-day week uh, in a shared office space uh, just off Madison Avenue. The noise levels were incredibly high. Uh, how anybody concentrated, I don't know. So, you know, a lot of this, and again, it's borne out by by some historical research as well it's borne out that you know if you get that get the 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 level of noise right inside your office actually will get better performance so you know this as i said it's not rocket science this was not about you know lots and lots of complex changes when you actually articulate them i think you recognize that that a lot of these are just common sense um and actually i'm you know slightly disappointed i hadn't thought of them before but it, <laughs> it was in fact you know that the catalyst of course was this issue of the four-day week and, and what that meant we had to do to change things yeah i'm just wondering i mean given that we see busyness as such a, a badge of honor and often a barometer of our own you know value and self-worth that we tie into that did you find that having more time was a difficult shift for people to make initially yeah, absolutely. We had some qualitative research done by uh, Auckland University Business School. And one of the things that came out of that was people actually struggled for quite some time to adjust to having more time. They 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 really struggled. And it took a few weeks, possibly even a, a, a month or so, for people to actually get that into their rhythm. And it's that's important, of course, because partly you bring tasks, you bring problems, you do bring interruptions into the office precisely because you haven't got time. It's only when you are conscious that that time is there, it isn't going away, and that you can plan to be able to deal with those tasks 
in that additional free time that, again, you get behavioral changes in the organization. So, you know, it, it, there's, a, there's a lot of this that we have to relearn. We've been conditioned to a totally different way of working. And, and I find I found that one of the more interesting uh, outputs from, from, from the four-day week. How important is the gift of time to people now that they've made that transition? You've obviously implemented this. It went successfully. And how important has that gift of time been to people and what are they doing with it? Our activities here broadly reflect was a piece of research done by Henley Business School uh, in the UK around the same time as we did it. Um, mostly it's family time, uh, but uh, it's getting fit, it's studying, um, it's cooking, it's volunteering, um, it's caring for family members. You know, those are the ones that, that it's basically much more focused on, on a bit on yourself, but also a bit on, on the family. And I think the best way I can describe what it means is is refer to one of my one of my team down in in Dunedin who is about my age. He he uh, he has a, a granddaughter, and he takes two afternoons off a week, and he goes and home. He walks home, so he gets himself a little fit. His granddaughter comes round, and they do grandfather granddaughter stuff, and then they have tea together twice a week, and, uh, and then she goes home. And when he tells the story, he cries. Mm. The point about that is he is not going to do anything to lose that time because that's far too precious. And you've got to look him in the eye as your team member and say, am I going to do anything to take that precious time away from my colleague? Because the way we set the goals or, or the deal, if you will, is a team-based deal. So it, it, the team that you're in has to meet the objectives, not that we really track them much these days, but when we set up the policy, the team has to deliver its on its on its commitments. So there is a collective responsibility and a personal responsibility, and that's a very powerful thing. Yeah. Is that a cultural thing that you had in your business by the type of leader and leadership team that you had or have, Andrew, or was that something where you offered some training or some workshops or facilitation about how people call each other out on that behaviour or recognise and support the positive behaviours that they see? How did you build that culture of self-regulation so well? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> Look, um, I would like to, again, I would like to say this is terribly planned. Look, there was a culture of openness and trust in the organisation. I think that's fair. And that's very important because I've got to know when the policy was announced, my team knew I was serious. They knew it wasn't about a backdoor method to cut pay or cut staff or cut anything else. It was a genuine attempt to change how we did things in which which would benefit them as well as benefit me so there was a culture of trust the rest of this we sort of learned a little bit by trial and error but you know what if you respect your employees then amazingly they also return that respect 
not just to the organization, but to their colleagues. You know, it, it is what we sort of do naturally in life. Um, but we often forget that when we're we're running business. So it sounds a little bit like when you go to the fancy restaurant and you don't know which fork or spoon to use, you look at what someone next to you is doing and copy them. Is that is well, that a little bit of a Well, I guess a little bit of it. I mean, look, we did we had to do quite a bit of work with the leadership team. I mean, the leaders, you will find this whenever you implement this stuff. The people who are the most anti are our management. And that's, I think, two reasons. And one is uh, they have been conditioned that working longer is working harder, right? That's what they've been conditioned, and and they've had to do it, so why shouldn't everybody else? That's point number one. Mm -hmm. I think the second part of that is that they're also concerned that actually they may be held responsible if it fails, you know? And so what we had to do, is effectively empower the leadership team. First of all, make damn sure they were doing it themselves. There's no point implementing a policy which isn't then followed by your senior team. But but yes. also to, to say to them, look, we understand there are going to be some failures around this, but we're, this is a thing that's important to us. We need you to give this a go. Empower them to experiment and try things. That's, again, not how – we don't teach leadership in business very often. We teach management, and this is about mm. leadership. It was about um, showing the direction and and empowering your team and trusting your team. I mean, there's accountability there as well to actually deliver the outcomes that we were looking for. Obviously, you're part of that leadership team, Andrew. So what's the biggest – personal challenge for you in making that shift to an, a non-working day? Because that's the other shift, isn't it? It's not just a, a day off and then we'll maybe do half a day on email. It's it's having a non-working period. Oh, look, I mean, I'm just as bad as everybody else. I mean, my problem, of course, was slightly different because we did this thing and then obviously the the my diary exploded at that point in terms of people – all over the world. I think we've we've been interviewed in 89 countries now uh, on the topic, what happened, how we did it. So I shifted very quickly from from working, you know, I own my other business, so I, I shifted from working, um, so, you know, or, or a full week um, on the business to working a full week on trying to deal with the four-day week. Um, so it completely yeah. ruined my work-life balance, I have to say. But, <laughs> but, but, but what it... What happened, I think, is that it's forced me, and I'm absolutely firmly on it now, um, it forced me to, to review what I was doing. It forced me to rethink how I was using uh, in the email, um, all of those sort of things. So I, I, I had to then deal with the four-day week workload as well as my business workload. But then over time, it's actually... You know, I've I've reduced down lots most of the time now. I, I spend very little time in the business. Have a senior leadership team there. I my main work now is four day week, which is is you know talking to, to companies and countries around the world on on why I think this is a good idea and how they can do it. But I'm certainly much better balanced now, primarily as a consequence that I've recognised the benefits of it. 
and I've also recognized, you know, how you um, how you have to change behavior, your own behavior to make it work. And how have you maintained the the concept of the full day work week with people now predominantly working from home in New Zealand? I think people still are, aren't they at the moment? Yeah, yeah, we 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 do. Look, it was very interesting when we went into the full lockdown last year. We had 12 weeks of full lockdown. Uh we sailed through that period almost untroubled. In fact, we had two record months, one month that missed out on a record by about $27,000. Now, in context, only 200,000 of the 2.4 million workforce in New Zealand wasn't either being paid directly by the government or getting wage subsidy. We didn't need any of that. We we mm. didn't miss a beat. And that was because, again, we knew how to operate when people weren't around, whether it was because they were having to do childcare or whatever there was the issue, we already had those processes that if we couldn't get hold of X, we had Y who could deal with it. So it, we, we found that our organisation then became more resilient. Now, actually, it is my contention that the four-day week is critical, more critical when you're working from home. Because when you're working from home, actually what you're really doing is sleeping in the office. Mm -hmm. And the danger is that your working day expands. I'm not doing the commute because I can start work earlier. Fine. Uh, I'm working later because I've not got the commute home. And so what eventually happens is that the stress, the pressures, all of those issues that we're trying to get away from using four-day week, if you're working from home, you can find that those things are in space. So actually, a four-day week is helpful because you can actually enforce, you could even absolutely enforce it if you wanted by technology, but you can enforce a day when that person takes a break. And that, I think, is very critical. It's going to be one of the big challenges facing business going forward that we have to recognize that actually maybe the balance has now got worse as a consequence of working from home. Um, it's got some benefits, but but actually the length of time we spend working has probably got longer. Yeah, and this is a this is a terrific challenge for the twenty first century for for every employer and employee. I, I think the exactly the for the reasons that you're you're talking about. You mentioned or referenced earlier. You now travel the world advising and talking to people about this and how to implement four-day work weeks into their organisations. Why do you think the idea has scaled so successfully? When we did it initially, I think it was the dream. You know, it was, if I, you know, your people wrote this thing about, you know, having three-day weekends. And, and, and that was probably people just being inquisitive at the get-go. But then, of course, COVID's hit. Now, you know, if you'd said to major businesses, you know, two years ago, you can actually run this from your kitchen table, you'd have said, actually, you know, that's stupid, can't possibly. But actually, what companies have found that, mm. yes, amazingly, you can run them from your kitchen table. Your staff can be trusted without being supervised. You are able to see that there's better productivity. So what's happened now? is that people are saying, well, first of all, I can now, I can rethink, reimagine the work. But I also have then got to deal with issues around the mental health issues that are now probably increasingly um, acute. 
Uh, I've got to still deal with things like gender pay. Uh, Four-day week does a lot to, to resolve those issues. I've got to think about how I restart my economy, how I upskill and retrain people whose industries may well have been you know, partially devastated by this. Again, there is a role for a reduced hours week to play in addressing all of those points. And I think increasingly countries, I mean, the current one that we're all you know, very interested in is, is Spain that's actually actively launching a, a pilot, government-supported pilot, um, I think in the middle of the year, to test the four-day week on precisely these points to see what it will do as far as the broader society is concerned. And I think everybody's looking at these things and saying, actually, the, the four-day week is a tool that we can use to assist us in reimagining how we work, but also dealing with some of these rather acute problems that we have either in society or the, or the workplace. It's terrific, Andrew. I'm going to play the role of the sceptic now because I'm sure there's people listening saying whether they're a part-time worker doing a three-and-a-half or four-day-a-week or they're working five days but feel like they need eight to do their work, they're probably sitting there listening saying, there's no way, I'm so busy right now, there's no way I could reduce my work and, and feel better for it and have all of the benefits that you've just been speaking about for the past uh, little while that we've been talking if there's someone sitting there saying, I hear what you're saying, but there's no way that works for me, where could they start or where should they start? Well, I think that the start point is is, is to say that in every organisation there are people who feel that way. There are people who felt that way in my organisation. Um, but you keep using the word busy. Um, <laughs> I don't use the word busy. I use the word productive. <laughs> right? So it's understanding that mm. why are you busy and how much of the things that you're doing are actually not really necessary. How many of those things, if you sat down and really worked it through, you'd go, well, I really don't need to do that or I really don't need to do that or maybe if we tweak that process a little bit, I could find a better way to do it. Uh, and then also... Um, am I so tired that my ability to think straight is is being impacted? Um, how much am I being disrupted because I'm so busy, I'm so good at what I do that people keep coming to me? You know, a lot of these things are self-perpetuating. The key point here is that we said, look, let's try it. Let's just try it. We might be wrong. Um, we weren't but it's conceivable that we might be, right? We weren't <laughs> wrong. We found that it did work. So a lot of what I say to, to people, I say to organisations, is just give it a go. Try it. Trial it. What works for me may not necessarily work for you. It may well be, and we have a, a company here in, in New Zealand where we were talking to the chief exec, and he said, my staff are working 56 hours a week. There's no way we can get down to 32. Well, don't, but how about getting them down to 48? What a thought, you know, maybe take mm. them down to 45. You know, yeah. anything that's an improvement is an improvement. We This is why we talk about the 100-80-100 rule. We're not trying to, say, drag everybody down to, to a 32-hour week. What we're saying is can we change the balance? 
Uh, and you alluded as well, you know, to people on on a four day, say a four day or three and a half day contract. What we did with our four day a week people is we increased their salary by twenty percent because we turned around and said, actually, you know what? We believe you're probably producing in four days whatever everybody else was doing in five. And if you weren't, now's your chance to prove it. And and so suddenly, especially a lot of our returning mums, who are actually probably some of our most productive people and certainly our best at time management, um, actually were then no longer being disadvantaged for working four days a week because everybody was working four days a week and they were now being recognised fully for their contribution. You know, that's a very significant thing. Um, as far as the business is concerned, but but you know I uh, I I have this thing that whenever I'm talking, there is always somebody who who looks at me when I'm speaking, and uh, you can see them stare off into the middle distance, and they go, "You're an idiot, Andrew," and then they will turn around <laughs> and they will go, "Well, it wouldn't work in X," and and actually more to the point. Yes. Uh, they don't probably work in that industry. In fact, they have very little comprehension about it. But what they will do is they will go out of their way to find an industry, a business where it would not work. And that proves that the whole thing is is a waste of time. Well, first of all, if it works in every other industry, then that's probably a good thing, even if it doesn't work in that one. But actually what they're really saying, they're really saying is that way the way we work today is the absolute pinnacle of human achievement, that there is no better way, that you can't find a better way to do things. That's what they're saying, and I refuse to believe that. I think the improvements in productivity, the impact of technology over the last 20, 30 years demonstrates that that is just not right. And we have to therefore ask the question, why is it? that the way we work, the formation of the way that we work, hasn't evolved, but everything else in our life, in our society, in our businesses has. No, it's a a beautiful and compelling uh, business case that you've just put to to lots of people listening, Andrew, and I I thank you for it. How can people find you if they want to read your book, find out a little bit more, or or come across and queue up to join your progressive (laughs) organisation? Well, first of all, uh, I, we always say to people, go to the website, uh, www.4dayweek.com, uh, for us in the number. Um, we made a policy of putting everything up on the website, so you will find our contracts of employment, our legal opinions as to how we got around uh, the, the constraints of the employment legislation. You'll find the research outputs. You'll find articles from, from around the world. Um, some tips. It's a good place to start because that's got a base of information. Uh, The book, obviously, uh, The Four-Day Week, uh, which I wrote, uh, you can get it off off Amazon. Um, It's in the Kindle, Audible, if you wish to hear my dulcet tones, and and paperback versions. That was really written because I just couldn't drink that much coffee um, in terms of talking to business leaders. So it's a very much um, a how-to book. Um, in terms of how you actually would implement it. Um, and and then, you know, finally, I mean, we're always happy to take take calls. We're always happy to, to talk to people who are considering 
implementing a four-day week uh, in their business. Uh, we talk to, to people all over the world, you know, every week. Um, uh, you know, sometimes we're a bit busy. It takes us a little while to, to tee up a, a time. But, but, you know, you don't get many chances to change the world because the, the changes that this brings to organizations and to their employees um, you know, they are, it's absolutely extraordinary. It, it's, I haven't ever done anything in my business career as good as this. The only thing I'm, I'm sorry is that I didn't do it earlier. Yeah. Terrific. Thank you, Andrew. In their book, Rework, Jason Fried and, and um, David Heinemeyer Hansen say that workaholics, you know, the people who are putting in those long hours aren't the real heroes of our business. The real heroes are the, the people who are getting home on time because they're the ones who, who figured out how to get things done. So Thanks for giving us some really compelling and practical insights on how we can all be a little, I suppose, less workaholic and a little more hero in the way that we live and work uh, now and into the future. It's been a real treat talking to you. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. Just a couple of things before we wrap up. If you enjoyed this episode and think listening to more interesting and insightful conversations like this one is a good investment of your time, please subscribe by clicking on your preferred podcasting platform at andrewhorsfield.com forward slash podcast. And if you'd like to receive a monthly email from me with insider content, recommended reading and free events that I regularly run to help you advance people and performance, then sign up for content that's been curated specifically for curious minds like yours at andrewhorsfield.com free stuff. Thanks for listening.